So welcome back to Best Worst Podcast. Once again, it's Doug. It's Jacob. And it's David. And we are drinking uh, Lafroy QA cask yeah. and yep. uh, Garage Project uh, Fuzzbox at the moment. And I think David's moved on to water. Is that? Uh, I think we'll all agree that's, that's quite a good sensible idea. thing. Yes. So we'll try to do a lightning round here of some other picks of 2016 that um, didn't make our top five, but we wanted to acknowledge in a positive or maybe not so positive direction. Um, and try to do it in a bit more lightning round format yeah. so you don't have to listen to us babble on for 10 minutes. Um, I'll start with most pleasant surprise, Doctor Strange. I was pretty much over the Marvel Universe, not in a I hate it, burn it with fire way, but it's fine, but I'm a bit dull, yeah. dull whatever. More and I was yeah. just overwhelmed to have a film that made my top 10 of the year that was a Marvel film. Oh, wow. Top 10. Top 10, um, seven or eight probably. Wow. That um, took the Marvel template and simultaneously recognized all the strengths of it and inverted all the weaknesses and created the strongest on-screen trip experience I've seen since, I don't know, Enter the Void maybe, Beyond the Black Rainbow. It, it, It belongs in the same vocabulary as those films, except instead of being some little esoteric art house film, it's a $150 Marvel film that happens to also be a full-throated argument against killing and happens to invert the, oh, we're not going to send the energy beam down from the sky and have people fight it on the ground. We're going to have people go into that portal in the sky. Um, It's incredibly playful and... Uh, it just entertained me from start to finish, and wow. I, if every, yeah, I, as I say, it, it was a very pleasant surprise. Um, I felt like it did a great homage to the original comic books, which yeah. have you know the extraordinary art of Jack Kirby, and um, I didn't feel any sort of issues with the fact that they didn't keep the Ancient One oh, yeah. as an Oriental. Uh, stereotype. I thought that was perfectly fine to actually say, hey, we're going to make magic this international thing and create a Tilda Swinton character yeah. that's of Celtic descent yeah. that's part of this international tradition. And um, I, I respect that people have different viewpoints on it. I'm not going to belabor that point, but it wasn't an issue for me. I loved it too. Yeah. I've not seen it and I'm really looking forward to it um, for a summer kind yeah. of nice and uh, exciting movie night. Is Great. it still out there on the big screen anyway? Cause it's it might no. be somewhere, uh, but I think it's, it's probably, probably, probably got wiped out by video. one. Yeah. 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 Probably, probably home video yeah. whenever it comes out. I'll do it. Yeah. Right. So your turn, Jacob. Okay, so for me, um, my um, most pleasant surprise was the, uh, the number one pick of the New Zealand film critics' recent poll. Which we all voted um, incorrect? Uh, I didn't bother, no. Oh, okay. I don't believe in that kind of poll. I think they have an averaging <laughs> effect. Um, but anyway, that's a You could have changed the average, though. By by one fraction of a yeah. tiny percent. It's Might have been a different number one. You never know. Anyway, <laughs> number one was Hello High Water. And for me, I, when I when I went to see that, like I like Ben Foster. I'm not a big fan of Chris Pine. Um, seen him in a few things. And, you know, Star Trek. Um, I saw... Uh, I caught up recently with... Um, Bottle Shock um, a wine film where he played like a Californian surfy guy in the 70s and it wasn't great Um, the film was alright but he was yeah Um, and so to see him in this film just as a slightly older guy 
um, in southern mode, and he just really fit really nicely. It, I would, that was a surprise for me. Like Chris Pine in a performance that I really liked. Um, ben Foster slips into the white trash asshole role really nicely, and you, you kind of <laughs> don't kind of. That's not a surprise. Yeah. Um, but they had great chemistry, and. Uh, and then the film itself was equal parts sort of genre fun, um, kind of somewhat blunt social socio political commentary. Um, so you know, there's lots of comments on poverty and what the choices people in poverty make. Um, and then that whole kind of slightly dark edged humour where the protagonists are making really morally reprehensible decisions. Yeah, <laughs> but you kind of they're cast in such a way that you're going along with them and I, I, I kind of like that as a kind of black edge haha <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was just a, an enjoyable film and a great genre ride yeah. I, th- yeah, I thought it was really enjoyable it's from the same writer who wrote Sicario as yeah. well and, yeah. uh, which I also quite enjoyed and I then think... the director of Startup which I hadn't which I only yeah, I haven't seen David year. McKenzie's films so I don't really know how I caught up with Startup earlier this year which everyone was talking about as Jack McConnell's uh, Jack O'Connell, sorry, um, big sort of breakout role, um, and um, I hadn't seen it, and then I caught up with it um, earlier this year, and it was really good, um, uh, kind of a lock in prison film, um, and very different from this. Uh, it seems odd that a British director would be doing America Down South, yeah. but um, yeah. The, the writer is who really interested me, that the link from Sicario yeah. to this, and, and I. I forget the writer's name. Taylor Sheridan. Taylor, Taylor, Taylor Sheridan. But I see he's directing his first film, which is out next yeah. year, I think. That's so correct. Yeah. Really bang, bang, Did bang. he write um, Joe as well? I don't know. I think, I think so. He's written yeah. something yeah. else. Yeah. He's, he's, he seems to be emerging as this very savvy genre action mm. um, political ideologue figure, mm. which is a really interesting yeah. kind of filmmaker to have in the populist yeah. space he's, he's, ob- he's got a really yeah. strong somewhat liberal critique yeah. of a lot of a little of blunt of, but quite fun yeah I, f- I found Hell or High Water a little too blunt in one or two places but I, I like the I, I yeah like yeah it's so enjoyable oh, the, um, the waitress at the um, oh, oh my god well, there are two different waitresses <laughs> the actually yeah. the, the, the one who he tips and then later the one at the, the steakhouse. The, 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 the one at the steakhouse. <laughs> <laughs> the old lady at the steakhouse who oh, just didn't give amazing. a shit. <laughs> she was so good. I, I actually think um, there you know there's this whole kind of coalescence around the best of the end of the year that often happens around December release dates. And I happen to think I liked La La Land a lot. I really liked it, and you know it's probably around eleven or twelve on my list, sort of floating around where hell or high water is. But I think if that Hell or High Water and La La Land had reversed release dates, I think Hell or High Water would be this sort of presumptive yeah. Oscar favorite right now instead of this genre piece that slid out in August and kind of disappeared. Yeah. Especially in a post-Trumpian universe because it yeah. is a very strong critique of so many things that yeah. are wrong with America. And um, It's an inequality film. Yeah. And, and yeah. it is an inequality film. And at the same time, it is so fully committed to um, delivering what it's meant to deliver on a genre level. Yeah. That yeah. it's not an I, Daniel Blake film where no. your, your enjoyment of it in part depends on your interest in social critique of a system. And, and, and knowing that I'm the Ken Loach you know, hater in the house, I should say I actually thought I, Daniel Blake was quite strong, but it certainly um, dramaturgically is where I felt it was weakest. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Whereas just the opening shot of this, the way it sets up that first yeah, bank yeah. robbery, so oh, so oh yeah, yeah, beautiful yeah. scene with the car going around either yeah, side and the camera yeah, yeah. going around opposite sides of the building. Yeah, oh, fantastic. Yeah. And so, David, um, what was your uh, pick for the most pleasant surprise of the year? I'm going to cheat on a few of these. I've got. Two, I'm going to jump in with Le Demon uh, by Philippe Lesage. Oh, hell uh, yes. He's a Canadian director, and every year there's a bunch of uh, first or second time directors who turn up at the New Zealand International Film Festival, and I go to as many of them as I can. There's always one or two who just make me go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're, this, you're someone new I want to follow. And it yeah. was, this year it was really him. It's a, yeah. it's a very unlikely film. Uh, it's a kind of a coming-of-age tale. Yeah. Young boy, um, family drama, the, so many interesting relationships and yeah. in his relationship with his older siblings, so rich and healthy and wonderful and that's kind of what's saving him from the fact that he's kind of, you can tell that basically he's gay or bi or, or something or yeah. maybe just playful, he doesn't know but... He's getting all the wrong messages from his society. It could yeah, go wrong yeah. in all sorts of horrible ways. Oh, and there's a pedophile lurking in the background yeah. of the story. And, and it's it's also a period piece, so it's set just as AIDS is coming into. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and you're right. The, like, the, the sibling relationships are fantastic. In that. Yeah, but it's, it's just it's so nice weird. to have like that sibling relationships where they're actually really. I mean, they're at different places, and they kind of are in different, slightly groupings, but um, but they're really looking out for each other and they care for each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the film really needs that. Yeah. There's so many. And that Marion McKeever dance scene. Oh, oh yeah, oh, so yes. good. Oh, so so good. good. Yeah. So yes. yeah. So so because uh, there is quite a almost Hanukkah element about mm. it, but where Michael Hanukkah is mm. like, you will have no fun ever. Mm. Yeah. You know, in this yeah, I mean, if you, Vader death grip. There that, are these moments of that, joy. Yes. That dance scene. The early family fight where yeah. the father and the mother are fighting and the children are trying the children, to stop them. Yeah. And the camera just follows them and follows them and yeah. follows them. And, and, the, and the kids are just the, on each other's side. The willingness to be um, that confronting and mm. that joyful yeah. and to do both so well and so yeah. originally. Um, and there were so many other moments and in the film have, where I just thought, gosh, you're, actual, you're doing this so well. And to have the actual threat of the film kind of somewhat off to the side yeah yeah um, I also wanted to nod to 10 Cloverfield Lane uh, oh which yeah very small film very small budget film mainstream Hollywood but no one mm. particularly expected it to be good turned out it was great really yeah. really fun and in this in this world where every studio wants its own universe the Cloverfield yeah. universe looks like the most interesting one to me at the moment because they seem on the on the evidence of two they yeah, seem yeah. to be willing to make Interesting and I saw that, but I haven't seen the first one. Um, oh, that's interesting. The the first one is nowhere near as good. Okay, um, but this but one, it does set up the universe. Oh, okay. Yeah, and this one this one came into someone else's world, picked up ideas from it, yeah. and then decided to do um, basically a locked room story. I did this. On oh, I think the I think it's actually Mary entirely the reverse of that, which is that the original script was. Uh, positive, and then somebody said, Let's "Hey, make we can fit this into the Cloverfield film." But yes. it works, it really yeah. works. And John Goodman, John Goodman in particular. Oh yeah. my God! I mean, um, he didn't quite make my best performance cut, but he's you know he's, scraping yeah. Yeah, 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 there, yeah. and um, yeah, which is not to slight the other performances in the film, but um, in a year yeah. of like, there were a lot of locked room thrillers this year. I mean, Don't Breathe, you know, made my top yeah. 20, and that was a really room. fantastic room. one. Yeah. Oh, Room, yeah. And, um, this was also and a two, about a room. 2017 Split, which some of us have seen already, yeah. and Green Room, and then, and, and yeah. yeah, I don't know what it is about the uh, times 
about is um, it that we feel a, trapped? <laughs> that, that we're locked, locked into a small space with people we were violently opposed to. <laughs> Does that somehow resonate with us? I can't imagine how. But um, yeah, that's a very good. Um, yeah, when I looked back so, over yeah. the year, this is one of those ones from early on that it would be easy to forget about. That if you haven't seen, um, yeah, rent it, watch it. Mm, yeah. Um, so the flip side of that would be most crushing disappointment. Um, I could have gone with Rogue One, and part of me is tempted to go with Rogue One because I wanted to like it, um, and because I had such a joy with Force Awakens, but I just don't feel like getting in a Rogue One argument, and the truth of it is, <laughs> the Neon Demon was even more crushing, and I'm, I'm willing to admit that maybe I was wrong on it, and I'm kind of looking forward to it, reviewing it in a weird sort of way, because there were five-minute sequences of it here and there that I thought were quite transcendent. But overall, um, you know, I feel like Nicholas Winding Refn shouldn't be allowed to write scripts. Um, he, you know, Drive was fantastic. Um, it was somebody else's script. Only God Forgives was an exercise in watching wallpaper and having a protagonist that was a martial arts kickboxing expert that didn't get a chance to use that skill because apparently it's not that kind of film. And there's, and, and Neon Demon has makes the crucial mistake, I think, of actually thinking it's about something. And while it has this sort of Suspiria-esque air of unreality, and I love Dario Argento's Suspiria. It's one of my favorite films, and mm. I was really gutted when it played at Film Festival a few years ago, and lots of people laughed their way through it. Um, but I don't think Suspiria is trying to say anything about society or standards of beauty, no. and and doesn't have everyone acting quite as if they're hypnotized and waiting three seconds to give their dialogue, with the exception of Alessandra Nivola, who just kind of shows up and gives this really grounded, interesting performance for five mm -hmm. minutes and then leaves as if he's like, I've done my bit, this is what one's supposed to do in movies, and everyone's like, I don't know what he did, let's go make this thing that's entirely misguided. Um, but, you know, one of my best friends loves it, who loves Suspiria, and lots of other people have really liked it, so I, 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 I don't know how I got it wrong, lots of but people, I know I did. Someone just commented here. That, yes, what's your oh, opinion? Oh, small push. Um, I, I would be jumping in more forcefully, except I don't have a defense of the film. Um, I just happened to really enjoy it as an exercise in style. Went along yeah. with no expectations. Not a big fan of Drive. Um, would burn. Only God forgives. Yeah, Ted Graham. Burn the negative. I was, I was, negative I was about to say burn the negative, and then I thought this metaphor's dead. That's what we do now. Yeah, I'm rhetorically confounded. Um, so I had no expectations going into this, and I found it very pleasurable and utterly um, nihilistic and silly and fun to watch. I think he takes himself seriously in all the ways he shouldn't, but also in some of the ways that he has some reason to. Um, and I really don't have a case to make for the film other than, yeah, I enjoyed watching it. Um, it's not a film that I would steer anyone strongly towards. Did you see it, Jacob? Or no, no, I didn't. Yeah. I probably enjoyed it more than Drive. Oh, yeah. oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, there's one scene from Drive, the, the opening scene, that I completely loved. The film as a whole, I could just... Have you watched Drive once or twice? Once. So I watched Drive once and I had your opinion and I watched it a second time because the first time... Given that, I, you, given that you had my opinion, why did you watch it twice? Um, because the first time I watched it, a uh, combination of seeing it on film, uh, but also like... 
I was very besotted. I'm very besotted with 70s driving existentialist films, so like Two Lane Blacktop, oh, okay. Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, The Driver, Vanishing and the, Point. The, the Vanishing there. Point, yeah, yeah, totally. And the first scene of Drive fits into that, and the rest didn't. And so, and then I came, and I happened to be in America, and I saw it before it released here. And then I got back, and a friend of mine well, said, hey, I wanted to see it. I'm like, oh, it'd be interesting to see the difference between seeing it on print and DCP. And um, and I, I just felt like there was something unresolved about it. And so seeing it a second time, watching it, knowing what it was trying to do, and knowing that it wasn't trying to be a 70s nihilistic driving film, but an 80s impressionistic love film, um, it, it's like, okay, now that I see what you're trying to do, you actually succeed in that. And now that I'm putting, <laughs> and I, I, I do often believe in that, that you have to watch a film twice. Yeah. And that, and, same, and, same. and I do, as much as I suggested most crushing disappointment, I do feel like a lot of disappointment is not meeting your expectations. And an element of that is maybe your expectations were just fucking wrong. Yeah. You yeah. know? Has the um, film failed you or have you failed the film? It's a, it's a really interesting question. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about what you guys, what films failed you guys. Um, uh, the Light Between Oceans. Oh yeah, um, that was just a failure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a flat out bad film. But it, it, it was, uh, honestly, I think it's an awful, awful film. Um, I haven't seen it. What? Derek C. and Francais, who did oh, Blue Valentine. I, I, I really like Blue Valentine. Blue, I adore Blue Valentine. Yeah, I, I love found, that. I found Blue Valentine. Dick hated it? Yep, yep. Not a fan. Yep, there's... there's, there's Place Between the Pines. There's people... Well, the interesting thing about Place Between the Pines... Um, we saw Moonlight this morning, yep. Doug and I, and uh, there's um, a very strong performance from um, an actor whose name I'm not going to remember, but he plays the father figure... Maharishi who Ali. ...who is in place... Beneath uh, the Pines, Beneath the Pines, yes. among many other things. Which I, for- I completely forgot until Sarah Yeah, which, which yeah. makes me want to go and watch that even more. But yeah, I love Blue Valentine, and this just looked like it could be a really interesting film. So many people have found it incredibly moving, and I just don't see it. Have I, they? They kind really of, have. It kind of cratered in the States, and it's certainly not in any awards by, discussion. Oh, by so many people, I probably mean four or five New Zealand reviews. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I, with, I sat through it desperately wanting to find it as moving as it wanted me to find it. Yeah. It's... Uh, <laughs> it's a very stupid film. Um, that is the fundamental <laughs> problem with it. It's the kind of film in which when the couple who have got together against all the odds and for no obvious reason and are living in total isolation on an island far from anywhere where he mans the lighthouse um, have had two crushingly awful miscarriages and then find a baby floating in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean and decide to claim it and never stop to ask whose baby is it is there only one town anywhere close to this the baby could have come from yeah do we know anyone there could this go terribly terribly wrong when all of this has happened they never ever have another miscarriage you return to the spot where the two crosses of their two stillborn children have been buried again and again in the film a third cross never turns up, nor a fourth. Do they stop having sex because they've acquired a child? What exactly is going on there? This is like 1919. Um, there's not a lot of birth control. Do they not, no longer exist as sexual beings? These are valid questions to ask. 
these people are not characters, but they have to be characters for us to care about them. The film desperately wants us to care about them. The story is incredibly contrived. It's dealing with the most difficult of human emotions and slamming them in our faces. There's everything but kind of a violinist standing next to you, playing mournfully while you watch. And yet and I didn't feel anything. I felt mounting rage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I just... Um, yeah, I mean, there's somebody who's... in should be able to relate to this wanting to have children sort of thing and I, I felt like I was an easy mark for the film but I, I also um, Chian France is somebody who has never quite worked for me but at the same time even though I had major problems with Blue Valentine and Place Beneath the Pines there were moments within those films that were so visually striking and distinct that I could say okay I'm not on board with the script tendencies that you have, but as a director, I'm really interested yeah. in the way you visualize things. And this just felt like somebody, and it was shot in New Zealand, and part of me is like, is it the whole thing of like, I've never been to New Zealand before. This is immediately interesting. I'll shoot this very boringly. And, <laughs> um, you know, and it's set in Australia, but shot in New Zealand. And, uh, yeah, it, and so it didn't, it's just that kind of like, for us who live here, it's not production value, it's our backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so maybe that would change things as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so that was me. Okay. And uh, you, Jacob? Uh, for me, it was a film called uh, The Jewel. I haven't heard of it. Nor I. Um, I can't remember who directed it, um, but it starred Woody Harrelson and um, Liam Hemsworth. It was a, a western... Uh, Liam Hemsworth plays uh, a, a law maker in the West who is um, sent to investigate a small town where there seems to be a lot of killings of, of Mexican immigrants um, by a, kind of a cult figure who, who had got a bad name in the Civil War maybe um, and had, um, had then sort of made some sort of cult community um, and that was Woody Harrelson. Um, right. It was trying really hard to, and I, I like westerns. I like um, kind of interesting takes on the west, but um, and so I and I like Woody Harrelson on the whole. And so I was hoping for uh, more from this. It was really trying really hard to be some kind of art, and was not at all. Right. And when, when I say that, they had several sort of very distinct, purposeful shots of wafting curtains. Which, uh, <laughs> Um, which you know is Bright Star nailed that. Yeah, yeah. another Bright <laughs> Star. The Assassin. Mm. Use curtains to great effect. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the Assassin. Yes. This curtain core. That's just, a just, whole genre. Yeah, just, just pissed me off because I was like, oh god, please, why, why are you doing this long, elongated shots of a wafting curtain when the rest of your screenplay is just god awfully shit? Um, yeah. Remind me, did you see Edge of Seventeen or no? No, I haven't seen. Have it. you seen it yet? Oh yeah, That's yeah. So Woody Harrelson's Haley. in that as yeah. well. Haley Steinfeld. Haley Steinfeld. Yeah. He's good. Steinfeld. Yeah, uh, he is playing an impossibly bad character. Yeah, um, and he often plays an impossibly bad character. Well, not like bad as in, uh, just like a oh. ludicrous character. Oh right, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> that, 
People seem to like the Edge of Sin and Tain. Lots of people. Yeah, they do. I, 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 really good yeah, no, they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> High five. <So. laughs> okay. Uh, we can talk about that later, maybe. Um, let's move on to Most Overlooked. Um, David, I think yours is a Western contemporary of sorts, although I didn't see it, so I wouldn't know. Which one did I have for most? You had one that I... was uh, comma everyone war. Oh yeah, war on everyone. War on everyone. I broke that out from most pleasant surprise when I discovered that we were doing most overlooked. Because honestly, never this... heard of it. Well, it's by the guy who directed Cavalry, Cavalry and the Guard. Oh, and right. the Guard. Oh, okay, and um, it just snuck into theatres just here. Came Presumably, and went. he's an Irish. John Michael McDonough? Or yeah. is it the other oh, one? McDonough, yeah. Uh, no, it is, it's John Michael. It's oh, there, there's Martin, Martin McDonough. Yeah, the brother yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they're brothers. Yeah, yeah they're, they're brothers. Martin's a playwright. And, yeah. Brothers or cousins, I think they're brothers. I think they're um, brothers. I was... I quite liked The Guard. I didn't like Calvary, and lots of people loved it. I, I like Calvary. I didn't yeah. love it, but I, I, I did it. quite like it. Yeah. And The Guard was really um, nice. So I, I went not into nice, this not particularly expecting anything. You were saying, Jacob, that with Hello High Water you enjoyed the kind of being brought into the experience of men behaving badly. My God, this is this is a very, very black comedy about mm. two very, very corrupt cops who are also very, very dumb um, and just do everything wrong. And yeah. somehow it kind of works for them. You could hate this film, and I think maybe you should... Um, <laughs> But it's got it's that, Michael Pena, right? It's Michael Pena. Oh, yeah. And, and Alexander Skarsgård, and they're right. both really good. Okay, yeah. It's very well cast. That's an odd pairing. It's an odd pairing. It's an odd film. Yeah. Um, I, Michael Pena is fantastic. It I would like be him a, in a lot of things. It would be a very good film to see Drake, which I did not do, but the experience <laughs> was similar. It was like... Because <laughs> he was one of the best things in, in Ant-Man and End of Watch. Oh, it's fantastic. And End yeah. of Watch, was fantastic yes. as well. Yeah, yeah. Those yeah, are both... Yeah, yeah great. Well, someone has finally given him the role he deserves, and no one watched it. Um, and I, I think it deserves to be watched, but with no particular expectations and a drink to hand. It's just silly and riotous, and it's got a very keen dark wit. Oh, nice. And it's got sounds it's, a bit like in Bruges. Uh, yeah, a bit, a bit worse than in Bruges. You're a bit more willing to to offend. Yeah, there, yeah. I mean, there are moments. There are moments where it finds humour in the spectacle of someone just being rude to his children. It's and it's not even particularly witty rudeness. It's just oh, I'm going to act like I don't like my children. Um, and I'm my- sorry if I can. <laughs> <laughs> I like my children, but sometimes I just want to. Yeah, well, I. I get it. You'll understand when you're older. Yeah, yeah, the, the teenage versions of your daughters are listening to this hey. even now, Jacob, many, many years in the future. That's magic of the internet. <laughs> um, yeah, it was fun. Great. Mm. Um, most overlooked. Um, oh, yeah, that was your most overlooked. Uh, mine is a film. So this has been an interesting year because there's been a couple Korean films that have broken out in this kind of. I mean, in Auckland we have this Cinema Asia release, and things will appear for a week and then disappear. And there was a film called The Wailing that was really good and oh, made my yeah. top ten that appeared and then disappeared after a week. Mm-hmm. And then there's some other ones. One I'll get to later. Um, the Handmaiden, which played at the festival, then got a Cinema Asia release and then got a general release. And sometimes these things catch on. One that did not catch on, which is really disappointing, is Kim Ji-Woon's latest film, The Age of Shadows. And he did uh, Tale of Two Sisters, I Saw the Devil, um, 
He did The Last Stand, and he did some other good films that I'm totally forgetting. But um, it's set during the Japanese occupation of Korea, and it's a sort of wartime espionage thriller of I'm going undercover to investigate this, but perhaps I'm a double agent, or perhaps I'm a triple agent sort of film. And, and it's a very slow burn, which sets up about 90 minutes of um, competing uh, alliances and undercurrents of who's actually responsible to who in like a bajillion different characters. And you're kind of like, and just as you're not sure what's going on, it gives four consecutive set pieces that are the best things I've seen in cinema this year. And it's fantastic. And I saw it um, the morning after the American election in the Waira Park Cinema with one other person. Oh, my and God. it's second week of, in, oh. I believe, last week of release. And I think it probably got about, you know, I think we could, you know, fewer than 100 admissions probably here. Oh, wow. And it's just been completely dismissed and there's one scene in particular um there's a scene on the train where um uh the lead actor and the host song song kong ho i believe is his name is the lead actor in this as well and um he's trying to find the undercover spy but he's actually an undercover spy for the opposition himself so he's working with the team to find that person but at the same time undercut their attempt to find it and this all culminates in a scene in the, in the bar room uh, train of the car, um, which explodes in a fantastic way. And all right, don't tell me um, anymore. I want to watch this. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I don't know if it's um, anyone locally has distribution rights for DVD <coughs> or not, but it's yeah. terrific. Uh-huh. And your shake-up? Uh, mine is... Uh, I'm not sure if it's fair to call it most overlooked when it really only released in the French Film Festival... Um, for what two showings maybe one we'll go with it we'll go with it Bird People by a female director called Pascal Ferran yeah um, Pascal I don't know how to pronounce that <laughs> um, it was just so surprising um, I'd read the IMDB synopsis whoever wrote it had no idea made it sound <laughs> made it sound like kind of this bizarre kind of um, not uncommon well, almost like a like a romance gone wrong, where you've got like uh, someone meets up with someone in a, a hotel and and a, and and oh a, my gosh, and, wow, yeah, like a, a a husband on a business trip meets up with a hotel employee, which is not at all what happened. Um, it's 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 this, <laughs> it's called Bird People. It's about it, it follows dual stories of. Uh, an uh, American businessman who's um, over in France to work on some deals for uh, for his company um, and in the midst of it decides I don't know what I'm doing with my life um, his marriage is on the rocks and he just decides this is it, I'm going to throw in my job I'm going to throw in my marriage I'm, I'm, I really need to figure out what I'm doing and then sort of parallel to that is uh, a French girl who's just working a part-time job at a hotel, the hotel that he's staying in, and they don't really cross paths until a little bit at the end, and that's about it. Um, but her story is that she's in this job and just kind of doing kind of menial work and getting by, and then it goes surreal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to explain more than that. It goes surreal. No, you shouldn't. Um, 
We're really bad at lightning rounds. And it's yeah, yeah. And, and it's just a, a really surprising, refreshing, beautiful look at at humanity and the way that we look at ourselves and um, from a very odd perspective. Um, and so this 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 man is struggling with his whole life, and then this woman is is just suddenly finds herself in a very surprising point of view on life, um, and those two. Th- storylines kind of vaguely mixed together um, and there's kind of observation of people in various spaces um, there's, uh, there's a kind of an animator who draws and mm. yeah it, it's just it's, it's a beautifully observed film and um, just surprising and uh, it's the kind of thing that um, I guess like I said from the synopsis um, most people would just go well what the hell is this and ignore um, and I think that's sad because it's I think it's the kind of film that would surprise and pleasantly surprise a lot of people. Yeah, I think I saw it about two years ago on a Scandi screener. Yeah, I think it was 2014 was the yeah, release date, but it just a, uh, it turned up in New Zealand. And it's terrific and unexpected. You've probably only seen it on, yeah. see it online now, um, uh, possibly on disc, but look for it. Yeah. And if you're doing that 52 films for a woman, which is just about finished for the year, but if you're wanting to... I've still got a few days. Um, Maybe. If, if, you're wanting to fill, if you're wanting to fill out your film for a woman, this is a surprising, fantastic film. She was also involved with The Red Turtle. I can't remember if she was a co-writer or a direct, oh, okay. co-director yeah. or what, but she was yeah. involved with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's move to Best Unreleased. David? I'm cheating. I don't really have any unreleased films, but I do have The Infinite Happiness, which only screened here, I believe, once. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, I've not heard of it. Okay, it's... uh, It screened during the Documentary Edge Festival. Oh, yeah. It's a 21-part film about an apartment block in Copenhagen. Doesn't it sound exciting? Um, So it's 21 very short, essentially experimental films illustrating different aspects of this utopian architect designed um, extended living complex. Each film is its own little thing. One of them is a study of someone mowing the lawn. Um, One of them is about cows. One of them is about a cat stalking a bird. One of them is about a children's treasure hunt on Halloween. Um, I'm not going to remember what each of them was. Oh, one of them is about a pizza delivery guy getting lost in the place. (laughs) Um, One of them is about a unicyclist um, trying to find his way around the place. Um, One of them is about people gardening on the roof. Each of the films is richly satisfying in itself. Almost every one, I think. And together, they form this fascinating, lovely, composite portrait of a really interesting experiment in group living. And I found it just completely joyful and delightful. Oh, cool. Cool. What was yours, Jacob? Okay, so mine was um, uh, was a film that went straight to BBC iPlayer. That popular format? Yeah. yeah um, Astonishing, I missed it. So, <laughs> don't ask. <laughs> I saw it. Um, called Hypernormalization by a chap called Adam Curtis. Curtis yes. And Adam Curtis, um, I should take a moment to say that like I earlier this year somebody said if you could make anyone in the world watch a single film, what would it be? And I said The Century of the Self by yeah, Adam Curtis. Okay. <laughs> um, because his um, analytical yeah. eye is just so strong in his critique of Western conventions. So he, he's a British kind of journalist um, filmmaker who looks at socio-political 
history. Um, Hypernormalization, I think his thesis was, how did ISIS come about? And he basically goes back to 70s um, American foreign policy, Syria, um, um, Bashad's father, um, yeah, and just looks at the sort of the the Middle East. American foreign policy goes through um, the Reagan years and the choices made there, and and um, looking at how um, Gaddafi in Libya was used as a scapegoat for stuff that was actually happening in Syria at the time, and then yep. how that sort of turned into what we see today in ISIS. Um, looked at the advent of suicide bombers and how that was against um, Islam at the time, and then how. Um, Ayatollah Khomeini kind of came up with a philosophy that said, no, this is actually honouring Allah. Um, yeah, a very, very interesting, um, fascinating point of view. I mean, you take it with a grain of salt, but it's really... No, this is fascinating. A, a fascinating interrogation of how global issues and global concerns um, basically come about and how um, and, he, and he's basically looking at he sort of his thesis is that in the west we're uh, living in a fantasy we're looking at a fantasy of the world um, that has never existed in other parts of the world we're looking we're saying that this is how the world is but actually this is how we've created things to be in our space uh, in a way that economically and politically has pushed other parts of the world to respond in the ways that we are now seeing. So this is one of the most important questions of our times, and it sounds like it's a very intelligent film interrogating yeah. it. I can understand why my film about a little apartment block in Copenhagen um, is not widely known. Yeah. How did this one manage to dodge? It's a, he makes long-form, like, three-hour documentaries. Oh, it's long. Yeah. Okay. Century of Self is four or one hours, and yeah. Century of Self is basically talking about how... Yeah. Uh, we evolved the notion that um, one could define oneself through one consumer preferences. Yeah. Uh, you know, okay. looking at yeah. Freud and then looking at how, um, for instance, cigarette smoking was marketed as a way to define oneself as an individual and so on and so forth. No, that, that and, makes sense. Yeah, and he's done quite a few films along so, these So the BBC ways, is, is more than willing to keep funding him for these things, but it's not going to play on BBC One. BBC Two, so it's going straight to iPlayer in full format. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and I haven't caught up with hypernormalization yet, but Adam yeah. Curtis is somebody yeah. that I'm reverent towards. Yeah. Um, my two, I wanted to pick two filmmakers. As much as I love you, New Zealand Film Festival, um, <laughs> occasionally you abandon people that I highly value, and. Um, two people that uh, made amazing films this year. One of them is Nicholas Gerhalter, who made a film called Homo Sapiens, and some of Gerhalter's films have played the film festival before. Homo Sapiens has no Homo Sapiens in it. It's 90 minutes of what we might call urban ruins, though not all of them are urban, but it's imagining a viewer who is coming to Arguably, it, it, you're given a lot of room to find your own purchase in it, but essentially imagine a viewer that has come to Earth after Homo sapiens is gone because there are no um, Homo sapiens walking around in the film, but we see what they have left behind, whether mm. it be in Fukushima or Detroit or nice. any number of other yeah. locations. And uh, you still do have birds, and you have, you know, there's Russian uh, things that have been abandoned, and. Um, 
and and so you are asked to view us and understand us by our works, be it by an abandoned shopping mall or McDonald's or giant um, domes that have collapsed in the center because of weather. Um, it's it's a beautiful film um, in that sort of urban decay, rural decay kind of sensibility. That and it also has. It's actually as much a um, piece of sonic art as this film art. I think that's what makes it particularly special. Is that it's not just these portraits. Because I mean, I think all of us have seen slideshows on um, various websites of you know yeah. Detroit urban ruins here. Click through and see twelve buildings that decayed a lot. And oh, isn't that amazing? And we aren't photographing the very popular barbecue restaurant in the opposite direction. But it's um, using all of the tools of cinema to create this immersive work. How does it compare to On an Unknown Beach? Very different because there's no narration, there's no humanity in it. Um, On an Unknown Beach is, you know, um, I I think they're treating very similar subject matters in very different ways. Yeah, I was thinking of the Um, ruined sequences in Christchurch in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm turning this into too much of a general conversation. No, 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 that's fine. We'll, and, and we'll get to On an Unknown Beach in a moment, which oh. is a fantastic film. Um, the other film I wanted to mention was Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Uh, uh, he was a favorite for a little while with films like Cure and Pulse, and then I think Retribution played at the film festival, and many people didn't like that. And then he had some films that were popular overseas, like Tokyo Sonata, and uh, Journey to the Shore, but have been neglected. And uh, his new film, which is a callback, is called Creepy, and I saw that at the Japanese Film Festival in Australia when I happened to be over there, and it's a terrific uh, supernatural thriller about a next-door neighbor who is not necessarily what he seems, and a cop who is ostensibly retired from being a cop after something's gone horribly awry at work, but nonetheless is drawn back in for one last gig, as it were, and takes a look at what's going on and finds himself drawn in uncomfortable ways. And uh, one of the um, hallmarks of Kiyoshi Kurosawa is this unnaturalism, I guess you'd call it, where... um, you can't quite tell if there's something supernatural going on or it's an expressive naturalism or something. There's a beautiful interrogation scene that starts with dozens of people outside um, the office and then they all start leaving and then the light changes quite dramatically and it's all in one shot and it suddenly becomes very dark as this person's describing this you know their experience with it and you you ask yourself is this person controlling it i'm not sure there's there's this great sense of discomfort that his he has a particular poetry with that i don't know any other filmmakers who quite nail his sense of lingering dread that is so special and um how would i go about watching it if i wanted to at the moment I don't know. Well, and that's, I don't know if it, I think it might be coming on iTunes internationally sometime soon, but I don't know if it's going to get a local distributor or not. I mean, it just played that Japanese film festival, yeah, yeah. but we don't have a Japanese film festival here. And the New Zealand film festival seems to have turned their back on Kiyoshi Kurosawa. And I think Tokyo Sonata may have got a DVD release, but in 2016, 
who's to count on the DVD release. And that's, you know, it's so frustrating and infuriating. And the final scene of it is one of the strongest performance moments I've seen all year from a, um, as the lead actress who's the stay-at-home wife who's next door to this peculiar character who gradually gets inveigled in his strangeness, and I don't want to spoil so much. Um, and there's this, just this extraordinary catharsis. Also, Kiyoshi Kurosawa is a filmmaker who made his um, back on horror films and then made several non-horror films and was struggling to get budget. And so there's an element in which this horror film that he's now made, even though it's based on a Japanese either novel or manga, I'm not sure which, um, calls back to a lot of his other films mm. um, in ways that are quite explicit, almost as if, um, okay, you're going to force me to make a Kiyoshi Kurosawa film? I'm going to make the ultimate Kiyoshi Kurosawa film. And here's a reference to Pulse, and here's a reference to Cure, Cure yeah. and here's a reference to Bright Future, a.k.a. Jellyfish Alert, where they're watching a jellyfish on screen for no other reason than perhaps that he made a film called Jellyfish <laughs> Alert. And yet, um, and so it's a film that you could almost argue is made with a certain level of contempt for what he's become and at the same time shows his sheer facility with the genre mm. that he is nonetheless able to create something that is, yeah, I mean, for me, it was the film that you described The Witch being. Mm. Huh. Okay. Um, in, terms of, in terms of my visceral effect. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, let's move on to best scene, though. Um, now, David, you say you have too many. Now, oh, so, but you'll, so you'll have to go through them quite quickly. So let me try to do this quickly. Okay, I could do any given scene in Steve Jobs, which is a very theatrical film. Mm -hmm. Every scene in it worked for me brilliantly. I loved that film. Tony Erdman, several scenes in that that I thought were spectacular. Um, any given fight in Doctor Strange, the mass fight scene in Captain American Civil War, which was a kind of... Oh, a, the one-on-one -on -one at the airport? Or the I mean, one, team on team, team at the airport, at the yes. airport yeah, which yeah. is kind of a fantasy moment for me. Grew up yeah. reading comics. Yeah. One of the things comics love to do is throw superheroes against each other. Yeah. Marvel yes. famous for creating weak villains. Yeah. This is the film where they solved that problem by having their heroes fight their heroes. They've yes. seen films establishing these characters. Once they got that past that hour of them debating each other, it was quite good. <laughs> I loved that hour. Okay, um, well, someone had to. Um, far more on board with Marvel in general than you are, but also with these particular directors whose names I have inconvenient. The Russos. Yeah, I think, I think they're great. I, yeah. I think they're the strongest thing Marvel's got. And um, I found that scene in particular, it, it just put such a smile on my face. Um, the sex scene in, in Animalisa. Holy one, crap, one that of was the, good. One and of the uh, strangest yeah. and most powerful scenes I've ever seen in an animated film, and also one of the one of the rare sex scenes that actually felt like two human beings discovering each other rather than just, let us show you naked bodies. Uh, it, I thought it was magnificent. It was one of the most genuine sex scenes I've ever seen, and it was between two. And I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, and uh, the final, the, the epilogue of La La Land, um, which... Oh, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, which is, for those of you who can't see him, is reducing Doug to tears merely... Misty, but <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous scene. Um, and welcome uh, to Sal's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See it, see it, see it. Um, but I'm going to go with my best scene is the opening scene of the very opening moments of a perfect day, in which we see something, including the camera. We've seen the uh, logos. We see light filtering through in narrow shafts between some occlusion, um, as 
the light slowly fades out and comes in at different moments we realize that whatever is occluding the light is rotating the names of the cast appear in the light and are obscured as the occlusion kind of cuts them off and slowly slowly we realize that this object um, is a human corpse being right. being lifted up out of a well which is which it is befouling um, Trying to get this body out of this well is what the entire film is about. It's visually spectacular. It's very, very black. It's very, very funny. And it's one of the most inventive opening moments I've ever seen. That's mine. Wow. Um, Jacob. Okay, so um, I'll put in a couple. Um, so first one. But yeah, probably the, my favourite of the year was... Well, actually, I'll go with my second favourite. Um, Hail Caesar, which was a Coen Brothers film, which was to my mind a little underrated um was uh had a, a number of great sort of moments in it and, and I, admittedly i watched it after not long um listening to uh katrina katrina longworth karina longworth. sorry karina longworth very interesting series on the blacklist Me too. Oh, um, yeah. and which i didn't know a lot about and then watching this out on the back of that was fa- fascinating so where they good. actually mention eddie mannix as a person and and right. and and the 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 scenario of, of the blacklist, blacklisted writers and the communist scare and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the scene in there with um, Rafe Fiennes um, and uh, and a- Alden Aidenrich. Alden Aidenrich. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, as I mean, you could be right as um, well. And the British director of a kind of a matted scene. Yes. Doing their. Um, the, the British Would director. Would it be simple? Would it twist? Would it simple? Where Rafe finds is trying to be so accommodating for the the actor, the ho- the, the hokey actor that that the producers have foisted on him, um, who is really not at all right for the scene, but it's the only person they've got that they need that they want to put in there and he's trying to be so accommodating to him and he's being very polite and uh, and they're in completely different worlds and it's just fantastically funny and beautifully acted I right. love that scene that's um, interesting because No Dames with the musical number would have probably been my favourite from yeah well, a lot of people I've seen scene. comment about it and that I've interacted with that was their favourite scene but for me that was just a beautifully awkward comedy and I loved it yeah. um but my favourite um, scene of the year, again, another awkward scene, was Tony Erdman, and it was The Greatest Love of All. Oh. Um, excuse me, spoilers if anyone... Listen, um, cut off now if you want to see Tony Erdman. Which to you should. Yeah, which you should. Um, so uh, what happens is that they've been through a very awkward scenario, the father and daughter, um, uh, where, and, and, then, and then they've travelled to a place and... The father, who is faking being this person, Tony Erdman, who is then, in turn, faking being the um, <laughs> yes, ambassador to Romania, um, has got them invited to a house, a, 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 just a typical Romanian household for a holiday celebration, has turned up with his daughter, who he's claiming as his assistant, as ambassador, um, and they're going around doing these bizarre little rituals with the family, um, and then right at the end he said, as a thank you for having us, we're going to sing a song. And he puts his daughter on the spot, and he starts tinkling away on piano. The Casio, gro- actually. Yeah, at a yeah. Casio piano, the greatest love of all, who most of you were, were, I can't remember who the original was done by. Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston was the one that we know, but I think it was George Benson before that, actually. Oh, it might be. Um, 
and just starts playing and then he looks at her and she in horror looks at him and then just launches into the most fantastically average <laughs> version of the greatest love of all ever but it, she she is she can kind of sing but not very well and it's just the complete commitment of Sandra Hiller in this role and the complete commitment of the of the character to sing the song full steam ahead with and like I think the 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 the, the still of that thing where she's got arms out kind of just yeah. singing full and surrenders voice. herself yeah, to surrenders yeah. herself to the moment of, of her father's ridiculousness and it's so awkward and it's so good and then when the song finishes she doesn't say anything she just stops and walks out of the room (laughs) because she's so embarrassed and and it's perfect it's so good and uh, like a lot of other people um, preferred the scene that comes later on for me that was the the pinnacle of that film (laughs) the the scene that comes on later is pretty fantastic but uh, we'll leave that for uh, listeners to find themselves Yeah. Um, yeah I I had a lot of choices, but I'm just going to stick to one. Um, I've mentioned the Korean films, and the one this year that, uh, again, didn't get critic screenings, we just showed up to Train to Busan, and all we knew is that it was was a train film, and it was a zombie film, and it fulfills it's supposed those rules yeah so do not get on the train to Busan and a lot of zombies and there's a, a there's a mid-film point where they um, stop at a station because they're going from Seoul to the south of Korea yeah. where they believe they'll be free from it but they stop at a station and there's the belief that there's somebody there that can rescue them and particularly from this one car that's full of zombies that hopefully will stay closed while they go and go to this completely free of zombies the place where they're just happening to stop that will get them all safe and everything will be well and things do not go according to plan Mm. and the extent to which things do not go according to plan is just this ever escalating set of draw dropping set pieces it's like three set pieces in one that just um, start from Oh, this is a bad idea. Oh, this is a bad idea. Oh my gosh. Oh, at least you're getting... Oh no, you're not getting away. Oh my... And, um... Yeah, it was just one of those... Um, and I don't know how much of it is that, you know, seeing a film that's not mm. particularly heralded um, deliver that level of continuous, um... You know, yeah, one yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, made a difference versus seeing something that was perhaps more heralded. But I was just like... That as I was watching, I'm like, this is the best scene I've seen this mm. year. Oh, and he, and while just... the while the film has certain failings in terms of some characters being a little bit plastic or one dimensional, um, in fact, a lot of that emotionality that's a bit surface. In fact, I I feel like works for it mm. quite well in moments like that and other moments within the film. There's quite a few set pieces throughout, but that's the one at Daijian Station that I was just jaw-droppingly enraptured with. So, best performance, Doug? Best performance. So, there's a couple theories about best performance, and most people usually give best performance to a great movie where somebody does a really good job. And I think that often if you have a great director who's lit you very well and directed you very well, that there might be several actors who could do quite a good job with that. I often think that the way to find 
a great performance, which is not necessarily a great thing for somebody who enjoys movies, is to go to terrible movies and see somebody who absolutely transcends mm. the requirements yeah. of the role. <laughs> and so we get to Grimsby. <laughs> You've probably already forgotten Sasha Baron Cohen's. Um, oh no, I have a role in Grimsby. Who can forget is... that elephant? <laughs> oh gosh. Um, and well, so, that string of elephants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Mark, thank you for bringing us back to Grimsby. <laughs> Brothers Grimsby in the state. And so Mark Strong is cast as the secret agent brother of this um, ne'er-do-well, confused man Sutherland. played by Sacha yeah. Baron Cohen who accidentally stumbles on his long-lost brother who happens to be a spy. Mm. And so um, this very committed, very diligent, very competent spy finds himself... Uh, enmeshed with the life of this Sasha Baron Cohen fuck up who names his kids Django Unchained and so on and so forth <laughs> and it's something that any number of actors could have phoned in a reasonable facility facility excuse me of a you know action star and it could have functioned at the level that was required the extent to which Mark Strong commits to this role <laughs> and commits to it while he's in yeah. an elephant anus and, or whatever, he, an elephant <laughs> vagina, I'm not even sure. Um, and the extent to which he never breaks and treats his yeah. role like he's playing Shakespeare is jaw-dropping. And As orifice performances go. I, I don't know that it's worth watching the film for, but I don't think that there is... There are few, if any, thespians who would have given themselves as fully to this role. It's like, yes, if you know you're getting cast in a film by Martin Scorsese, you're going to work hard for it. You're going to, you know, commit yourself to this performance, whatever. If you're in a Sasha Baron Cohen role and you're going to be inside an elephant's vagina, perhaps you could just, you know, just show up and do what's required. But no. Um, the other the other one, um, and you've mentioned Ray Fiennes before, yeah. um, I've always found Ray Fiennes a bit um, off himself. And even, um, I enjoyed him quite a lot in uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. Um, and he had a level of emotionality that was really strong in that. But, but it's what, still a certain what, level of self-seriousness. Uh, is he even in Embridge? I don't remember. He is, the, he is the, the, the head bad guy who they have I, to I know where you're going with, this with the when family. I, when I trying tried, to be nice. When I tried to find a comparison performance, Embridge was the only one I yeah. could come up with. Although, yeah. it's not really similar. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't remember him in Embridge. I remember Colin Farrell and I remember... Um, Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson dicking around a bit and I don't remember Ray Fiennes at all. But a bigger splash... Um, I haven't even seen that. Yeah, so it's Luca Juarez, you know, who it's I did uh, I Am Love. I Am Love. And, oh, yes. uh, and it's Tilda Swinton. And he's doing, yeah. and it's Tilda Swinton, and it's Matthias Schoenhartz, and it's yeah. Dakota Johnson. And so basically, Tilda Swinton's a almost Bowie-esque singer, rock star who's lost her voice, and Matthias Schoenhartz, her sweetheart. And uh, oh, they're, yes, they're vacationing yes. somewhere yes, I remember in a villa. And um, Ray Fine shows up with his young ingenue or daughter. I can't even remember what. No one quite knows, but he claims that she's his daughter right from the start. It yes. seems suspicious. It does seem suspicious. And Ray Fines decides to have more fun than any three actors had in a film this year combined, which would be extraordinary for any actor, but for Ray Fines, who seems like he's on the edge of perpetually constipated, um, it's just revelatory. And he has a 
it's one of my finalists for best scene of the year. He talks about being a rock producer and working on Voodoo Lounge with the Rolling Stones and spends eight minutes starts, starts narrating like... how Charlie Watts found his drum sound on this completely forgotten track from Voodoo Lounge and somehow this completely irrelevant plot insignificance <laughs> is better than almost anything else I saw on film this year. Yep. And it's a film that kind of... Um, I think Guadagino's fantastic, but um, his his sense of moment is much better than his sense of pace, and the film That's kind of put. drags in its mm. um, last third, once it's reached a certain climax, it kind of doesn't know where to go, um, and it does the best it can to fulfill the requirements of its plot. But the sense of moment has mm. disappeared. It's, it's an interesting um, film rather than a great film. Yeah, but, but it's man, a, it, that is a great performance. But it, uh, yeah, and it's and it's a it's a film that has its frustrations, but its its high points are so worth watching. It's that frustration of like a rating scheme where it's like I can't give an overall high mm. rating, but you know, in yeah. terms of if your idea of watching film is watching great high moments, mm. it's up there with any film this year. Yeah. So just a bridge from that, um, and to yeah, so you're throw back to my one of my um, to my best scenes. Um, uh, Ralph Fane finds and um, and Hal Caesar as as the director um, Lawrence Lorenz. Um, well, I I think he just did a fantastic role of capturing the kind of the very Britishness of that character, um, and the, but that whole kind of overly polite but enraged politeness <laughs> and, and again that was him in a very kind of not being particularly self-serious and, and and finding some great humor in that in that in that performance but my my top performance of the year would have to be um i think um newcomer lily gladstone in um certain women um and that was just a very quiet very moving very Fresh and surprising, and that's the woman we're talking about. In yeah, the third story, in the third with story Stewart. yeah, where she played the, the ranch hand who was looking after a ranch, and you didn't really see anyone else in, in that space. It was like she was a sole charge of a, of a ranch looking after some horses. There was this very concerning um, little um, uh, dog. Um, I can't remember, like a, it wasn't a border collie, it was like this little thing that was like running around and gave me heart palpitations because I felt like I was going to get run over every couple of seconds um, by the quad bike she was on. Um, and, and, Those yeah, were great scenes. And, and she, her, her facial expressions are just so kind of lonely and capturing, encapsulating that loneliness, encapsulating that kind of desperation for connection and she's so and, open and hopefulness yeah and having not seen her in anything else it was it was just a gripping performance and 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 just quietly heartbreaking yeah 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 it was revelatory yeah. I had that down as I I couldn't choose a best performance that was that was one of the ones I had if I had to choose one it would have to be Sonia Braga in, in Aquarius I still haven't seen that, which I'm gutted to admit. Mm. I think it's coming back next year. I, I suspect it is. It's a complicated film. No, it is coming back next year. It is definitely coming back next year because I've already written a review for it. Um, I think it's coming back in February, um, which is good. You should see it. Uh, it's a classical 
great performance in the sense that it's the role the film depends on for its meaning. It's a very large role. It, it's a, about a three-hour-long film. She's right. in all of it. Yeah. Uh, it's a role that slowly introduces you to who this woman is, lets you see her in all her dimensions, of which there are many. Um, it's, it's just a grand performance. I don't want to say too much more about it, except that it's, it is coming up soon for New Zealand listeners, so go see it. Um, uh, the young boy... Edouard Tremblay Grenier in Les Demons. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 he was fantastic. Uh, one of those fantastic child performances which are largely observant. He's mm. very, very reactive. He takes mm. in everything that happens around him. Occasionally he acts out. Um, just so much scope and range to it. One of those performances that you mm. wouldn't expect a child to give because yeah. it's precisely about not knowing the things that you know mm. um, and he manages to capture so much of what's going on around yeah. him while still seeming very innocent um, I also wanted to mention Leif Schreiber Schreiber in Spotlight he's um, amazing yeah, in that yeah, I gave yeah. him yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, um, it's, it's an ensemble cast it's a film of very restrained performances and I wanted to mention him because he's kind of the most disciplined restrained yeah. but also impressive performances in it. He's not in it a lot. He plays um, the new Jewish editor of the Boston Globe, Boston yeah. being a very Catholic town. Yeah. Marty Baron is the yeah. Yeah. Based yeah. On. He's right. now the editor of the Washington Post, He's aka a the number one anti-Trump paper in the yeah. States. Yes! Um, and he just, he, he makes him a very formidable, slightly mysterious ultimately benign but it takes a long time for that to become apparent. Yeah. But mostly just very formidable and restrained um, character by n most about what he doesn't do he, and, and he chooses that very well and I, I remember thinking in that film that the one moment in the film that really doesn't work is when um, oh god when, when someone gets given a great rampaging speech to show it, show us all how much what they're doing in this journalistic enterprise yes, yes. and it's the one moment where you think oh man no this is not what this film is about what the film is yeah. about is just doing the work and not being demonstrative yeah. and he's Schreiber is the person yeah. who kind of embodies that. I would have absolutely named that if I'd remembered it because I think of that as last year's film, but of course yeah, 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 yeah. it's this year's yeah. film. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, the poll that I voted in last year I gave him all the points because I yeah. was just like the work he does with what's a very thankless small role yeah, on paper right. and what's a very cliched like the top editor coming in yeah. and being that um, is just extraordinary yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that's what I've got cool. um, best New Zealand film now you, they, guys you and I have the same one and it's been an interesting year because there's you know, films like Poirier and Hunt for the Wilder People that have been... And also well, the, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, not for me. But <laughs> we've talked about that before. We have. But um, I was fascinated, and especially because the New Zealand Best Film nominations have just showed up. And um, some of them... Um, I was pleasantly surprised to see Free Indeed on there, for example, which played at the mm -hmm. film festival as one of the top five. But one of the ones that didn't make it was one um, that you and I both loved, On an Unknown Beach... Uh, yeah, I'm guessing just not enough people saw it, which... It was nominated for Best Cinematography, and I can understand... Yep. And it didn't even make the best seven documentaries, which I thought was a little disheartening. I mean, 25 April and uh, Flickering Truth and some other uh, Tickle and some other quite good films made it, but... 25 April uh, The film. Ground We Won... Uh, I haven't seen 25 April, to be fair, but... Um, the Ground I, We Won? 
the ground we won, yes, because they didn't have awards last year. Oh, of course. So it's it's cool. it's, it's it's covering two years. Yeah. Well, um, the, the ground we won, fantastic. Yeah, if that, if that wins, I'll be very happy. Yeah, it does deserve to win. But, of the, of the oh, films they picked, certainly. But on an unknown beach, what a great film. Yeah, and I think we talked about it a bit last time. We did. But um, Hard just film to, to summarize, and it's getting late in this very long podcast. Um, but what would you say about it very quickly? Doug, go. I would say that on the surface, it's a tripartite story about different people investigating ruins in various uh, physical and metaphorical ways from the um, streets of Christchurch to the undersea bed to um, the uh, wrecks left in one's personal life after various mistakes. And it is photographed in an impressionistic and powerful way that lets you draw a web across it that in some ways I suppose reminds me of the mental activity within camera person um, but doesn't have but has much more strong sense of focusing on aesthetic to create its web where you feel like there's maybe perhaps a greater sense of design from the initial uh, starting point that's what I would say. Damn, well, what would you say? I could, I could not have done that. That was very nicely summarized. I'd say what you said, though. That's <laughs> okay. exactly what That's I, fine. I would also add that this gave me the experience that I wanted to have from Camera Person. Very different film, but as you mm. say, it gives you a similar degree of freedom to construct mm. your own understanding of what the hell it's doing. Sometimes challenging, um, often challenging, yeah. always rewarding. Um, there was never a moment in this film where I didn't feel that I was in very good hands that sense that every editing choice has been made very wisely by people who've really thought through a lot of different options, had lots of great footage, which may not have been the case. I think it was a very small budget film, but everything yeah. they got, they used really well. Yeah. And the I mean, they may have had 94 minutes of great footage, but the 93 minutes of great footage that are in the film are <laughs> put to an absolutely perfect effect. And um, yeah. so, yeah, I don't, I don't think... Um, I mean, it's in my top ten of the year. Yeah, it just happens a, to have fallen outside the top yeah. five. It's a real, and it's that's a real work it's of a art. strong year. It, yeah. it does something that I've never imagined a film doing. It creates connections between images that no one could have imagined without being given on a screen and it's just fun to watch i really hope that it require uh, that it acquires an international um cachet because you know it's put in new zealand but it hasn't been picked up by other film festivals and i think it's a really strong film and i've looked at other avant-garde films that have been uh of a similar milieu yeah. and i i feel like it's actually quite superior to them but um, whether Actually, it's something that because the internal knowledge that we have as New Zealanders plays to us or because they don't have the cachet of a Ben Rivers or some of these other folk that have um, commandeered these international settings, I don't know. But it really deserves an international champion to pick it up and take it to the world. Yeah, I think probably it's the kind of film that any, of, of any hundred given filmgoers, three people will like it, but those three people yeah. will like it a lot. So. Mm -hmm. It would really benefit from exposure to larger population groups. Um, it's very well made and it does deserve an international viewership. What are the odds of it getting it? Mm. Speaking of uh, international cachet, my pick um, of New Zealand film of the year uh, was uh, something that you mentioned already and that has got a bit of international cachet and that's uh, Dave Ferry and um, Dylan Reeves' uh, documentary Tickled, which mm. was both kind of disturbing, amusing, just surprising 
it's it's premise tickled uh, and the fetish tickling community um, really is like it's the thing that kind of draws you in it's up front something that's kind of sort of sensationalist and oh what's this but actually once the film sort of digs into itself it's it's backgrounded by the um, by the actual subjects which is kind of like an abuse of power um, and mm. wealth and and yeah and that's something inferior like has yeah. often explored yeah. in his journalism and I thought Tickled was great as well yeah. um, and it doesn't have I suppose I, I suppose it's aesthetic values are fundamentally journalistic yeah, and that yeah. what, that's what keeps it from making that next level of great yeah, art yeah. but it's compulsive watching yeah. it was amazing in a cinema to yeah. ha- as a ride and I, th- I thought it was a terrific yeah. film and it's no slight on it that I don't think it's the best New Zealand film of the year yeah. it's just that somebody happened to make something I thought was yeah, yeah. you know a landmark of New Zealand cinema Yeah, but yeah so th- this is a fantastically entertaining and disturbing um, piece of uh, journalism really um, and out on DVD and Blu-ray now if yeah. you're uh, Christmas so shopping at the last minute and you want to really and if mess up your family and, and, if you are, and if you are interested in, in the tickling aspect there are a few tickling scenes which are also very disturbing <laughs> more erotic and, depending on your point of view we're not here to judge and made me <laughs> physically cringe <laughs> watching them yeah yeah so that was fantastic. I've really enjoyed watching this film kind of make its way yeah, around yeah, yeah. the world and 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 pick up supporters and and on yeah. places like the the kind of people I see kind John of John Waters, yeah, you, John Waters made his film top, of the year, made his top ten list, number two film of the year, and yeah, it's pretty fantastic for a New yeah. Zealand film. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so shall we duck into the final category before we uh, wrap this out? I, I wrote this off in the Village Voice poll. Uh, the film everyone is wrong about, um, which could go either way, really. But I think we've all taken it the same way. Yeah. Um, very quickly, um, because I don't know how many people watched it, but um, Tower seen. played at the New Zealand Film Festival. It was a documentary about the Charles Whitman shootings yeah. at the University of Texas. Yeah. Uh, it was an animated treatment of that. And I found it um, almost distasteful at the time. I found it, you know, its treatment with, you know, kind of pulsating rock music and this waking lifestyle rotoscope animation that was of highly variant quality and also a formal conceit that relied on actors to play the voices of the people telling the story of what happened um, and then eventually uh, transition to the real people at a later point in the film. kind of questionable, especially given the fact that one of the actors was really wooden, mm-hmm. um, and also that I was very familiar with the story before. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't work for me at all. Um, it was part of the Incredibly Strange program, which has played lots of documentaries that I've loved. Audience of One, Dear Zachary, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, well maybe this is one that hasn't connected with me. Um, and then a couple months later, it premiered in the States and it's gotten rapturous reviews mm. from all the film critics I trust. It's been nominated or won documentary and animation awards in various things. And um, and I'm just at a loss. And so when I say everyone's wrong about it, it's actually, well, maybe I'm wrong and everyone else is right because I'm not that convinced. But at the same time, I feel like um, part of it is that uh, the story of Charles Whitman is entirely elided from the film. Mm. And so it's a story of people banding together in face of unknowable and horrifying um, 
violence and evil, if that's a useful term for you, um, to do what they can. Mm. And it's a story of people doing the best in the face of a horrible situation. And I can understand in the waning days of 2016 how that story has an emotional pull, mm. but it did the exact opposite to me of what it mm. did for everyone else. Mm. And part of me is fascinated to maybe look at it again and see why, and part of me watches it back in my head and say, no, it's just not going to work. Mm. Hmm. Neither of you saw it? No. I did see it. I liked it. Um, I, I'm interested by your response. I went to it because it was an animated treatment of something horrifying and I was interested in the animated treatment. I tend to resist the films about something horrifying, but it happened to fit into my program, so I gave it a shot. I ended up finding it um, respectful and moving, and I found the constantly shifting animation techniques did a really nice job of foregrounding its status as an artifact, which was what right. I found respectful. So I, I felt like he was constantly saying, I'm making interpretive choices here, I'm not claiming to give you a true recreation. If he'd, if he'd had actors doing that right. recreation, it would have seemed um, offensive, I think, in all the ways that I didn't find it. Um, there were moments that I felt like actually would be the fantasy of somebody who was considering the mayhem that they could cause, yeah. that they could be watching the fantasy of that unfolding. And, and that's not a reaction that most people seem to have had. So yeah. I don't know how to square that circle. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a whole conversation you could have about whether that film should even exist love, and yeah. about the desire of people to yeah. feel that they're being put in touch with that kind of situation oh, yeah. in a way that they can feel good about. Um, I, don't, I don't claim total certainty as to my response to this film, but it was a positive response. Fair enough. Um, Jacob, do you want to talk very quickly about uh, your answer? Yeah. Okay, uh, so yep. So mine is um, Neruda, which um, just seemed to get a warm response from a lot of people. Um, I actually found it really, yeah. really interesting. I uh, I like like I don't I just like the way that he doesn't do standard biopics, and the same with um, Jackie upcoming, where he doesn't sort of say here's a story or a biography that someone's written that I'm going to adapt and protect the person's point of view. He creates kind of fantastical um, heightened stories around a particular persona. And this is Pablo Lorraine. Yeah, yeah, and Pablo Lorraine, and create, and explores these mythologies of people that have uh, kind of a high profile and uh, importance in the sort of socio, or social um, stake of a particular place. Um, and I like the way that he does that, and then with this one he had like the cat and mouse um, film noir kind of uh, chase between the poet, um, social destabilisation person, and the policeman played by Gail, uh, Gabriel, Gail Garcia Bernal. Yeah, um, and yeah, and I just I quite enjoyed that, and and that it wasn't trying to be this kind of dry, factual kind of thing. Yeah. Fair enough. And now uh, you're going to have to tag out yeah, now. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll uh, say goodbye yeah. to you as we move on to um, what I think will be a heated debate for our uh, final yeah. film. Um, uh, David, do you uh, want to dig into um, your film Everyone is Wrong About? I watched Denise, 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 Denise Villeneuve. Denise Villeneuve's 
um, arrival with just a clear understanding that I was watching a somewhat risible film. Um, weak science fiction, um, poorly conceived and really quite poorly executed. And if you've ever had that kind of response to a film and then worked at, walked out and slowly realized that you're in quite a small minority, it's, it's, it's weirdly wrong-footing. Um, I don't hate this film. Um, I do, as someone who reads a lot of science fiction and in particular has thought a lot about the kind of story that this is, which for people who haven't watched it, I, I won't specify. Um, well, it's first contact. It's first contact, but it's, it's something else as well. There's a particular conceptual mechanism that it uses to produce a particular thematic effect, um, which I think a lot of people found extremely moving, which I found um, just fundamentally flawed in such a way that what it was trying to do was undercut by the way it did it. And I, I've thought about this a fair bit, and I, I feel quite strongly that the film just got it wrong, that the writing is bad, um, that you cannot get to where they're going by this route. It does not work. Human psychology won't do it. Um, and so many people in the immediate wake of Trump's election seem to find this the film that said it's okay, um, life has meaning, the bad stuff doesn't invalidate the good stuff. We should note that we both saw it before the Trump election. That's true. And that, and I, that I did you the most of the rest of the world saw it after. Well, and yet, and yes, you're about to say. We should also note that I did you the extreme disservice of laughing through it while you were having an emotional response that would have been a lot easier without someone distracting you. Uh, I think. I mean, I'm three stars on it, which is not a very positive response, and I definitely think that in particular, the last ten minutes was such a both overreach and hammering home of a point that felt quite narratively clear yeah. and a desperate hope to achieve an emotional effect that it never achieved. Um, whether I would have felt differently about that if I didn't have somebody laughing on both sides of me. Although, strangely, the person who was laughing on the other side of me it put it in his top films of 2016 at, over at The Listener. So I'm not sure what to make of that. Nor I. But, um, but I feel like without spoiling it too much there's a very similar um, element to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind which is one of my favorite films which is the and basically asks the question um, if you know the outcome of something before you do it is it still worth doing and both films answer the question in a similar, similar milieu in a similar way and Eternal Sunshine destroyed so me and Arrival did not. Okay, that's interesting. Um, like Eternal Sunshine is one of the most emotional experiences I've had. I have issues with film. Eternal Sunshine. And I can see that. But, um, but I think Eternal Sunshine is flawlessly constructed. This film tries to reach Eternal Sunshine's emotional end point, shall we say. Yeah. Um, by a route which, if you think about it for seven seconds, collapses in on itself. It says the human mind is capable of experiencing something um, which renders it something other than a human mind and which then gets you to this point of having a very human experience of kind of emotionally derived meaning. 
and I just I will not yeah. go there. It just annoys me. Um, <laughs> it, it, it seems like bad science fiction, and what particularly annoys me about it is that it's it's an attempt at very cerebral, thoughtful science fiction, which we do not get often. Um, it's being received, I think, somewhat rapturously by a lot of people, um, and it's it's doing it wrong, and people are seeing it as doing the thing right. And and if you're, you know, that particular experience of having your particular little thing that no one pays your much attention house, to, yes, yeah, yeah, and suddenly someone comes into it and kind of sprays paint all over it, and well, these these are the people who in my uh, Twitter feed are. Um, great fans of 50s musicals and are now like um, slitting their wrists watching people respond to La La Land. Yes, and, yes, that, and, that, and, that. And I love yeah. La La Land, but I... Yeah. I, I, and, this and is I, my vision of Yes, that. yes, and, um, and I suppose in the same way that those people would have only been happy if the reanimated corpses of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers came to dance those movements, I wonder if... Um, your demands perhaps outreach the capacities of the cinema. That said, uh, no, I, I no. certainly don't think that it... Um, I'm certainly not an ardent defender of Arrival, and but I do think that there are elements within it um, in the sort of Sapir Wharf sort of section of the film and the two intelligences getting to know each other um, that outweigh... Um, I, it's this interesting thing, right, that a lot of this uh, contemporary cerebral science fiction seems to be um, in the service of grief porn. <laughs> and, yeah. and we see that yeah. in Interstellar. And, I mean, it's a fantastic scene in Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey and um, whoever else being on the planet for 10 minutes, but it turns out to be 17 years, and he discovers, you know, all these... Yeah. everything that's happened yeah. while he's gone and that's an extraordinary scene of loss it's one of the, it's one of the great pieces of acting from that year and, yeah and and it's, it's, it's an amazing scene but um, yeah but it's 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 also sort of undercutting the um, maybe philosophical underpinnings of what the film could be about <sighs> if you wanted to make the film yep. about its science fiction ideas instead of slotting a grief porn narrative onto it and it's a Christopher Nolan grief man grieving moment and it's like you know you've 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 reached your lifetime limit you need, and yes you, 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 yeah, you liked Westworld um <laughs> oh I can't talk about why this is sorry <laughs> but you do see, you do acknowledge the similarity no no I don't oh, okay um, you, you do acknowledge that um, I, I perhaps uh, the grief towards another woman directed um, somebody's actions in a way that structured the entire rest of the existence of the story. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap this up and come back and have a worst <laughs> podcast sometime because apart from anything else, we've been talking for four hours. We and have been, <laughs> yes. So, and, we, and we've been talking so long that Jacob's had to run off to his family. So I, I suppose we should wrap it up. Thank you for listening and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And we might get together uh, to talk about the films of 2017 at some point. Until then, it's Doug. And David. And Jacob has left. And it's Best Worst Podcast. Podcast. <laughs>